After reaching an agreement to avoid the US hitting its debt ceiling, President Joe Biden said, No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis, an economic collapse. So is that what American politics has come to? Deals that make nobody truly happy, but everyone just about happy enough. The president's allies are certainly seeing this as a victory for the apparent master of congressional negotiations. Is it or is it an example of sticking plaster politics? And does Joe Biden have more economic trouble to come down the line? I'm Jacob Jarvis, and here to discuss this with me for The Bunker USA is Lawrence J. White, Professor of Economics at New York University's Stern School of Business. Larry, welcome to The Bunker. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to join you in the bunker. So what can I do for you? Larry, treat me like an idiot for a moment, like completely like an idiot. And can you give me a quick outline of the deal? What have we got here? Oh, my. Well, you've got to step back for a minute and understand that in addition to the normal budgetary process of here's what we're going to spend Here's the revenue that we will receive through taxes and other sources of revenue. And if the revenue falls short of the spending, here's the borrowing we will have to do. That's the normal budgetary process. And that happens. But in addition, in the United States, and this has been going on for over 100 years, there is an additional call it piece of legislation that the Congress must pass if the expected borrowing is going to exceed some specified amount, they have to, in addition, authorize that additional borrowing. That is what the near crisis was all about. That now has happened. It happened only a few days before the United States hit the limit and wouldn't be able to borrow anymore and then would face the issue, if we can't satisfy all the claims, we can't make all of the payments that we would like to make, how do we pick and choose? We've never had to do that before. This was truly uncharted territory. That has been avoided. Part of the settlement, if you like, is that we don't have to do this again until 2025. Shoo! That's a big achievement. And it will be after the fall presidential and congressional elections in November 2024. There were some compromises on what spending was going to get cut. There was basically no new revenue that was going to be authorized. It was all about the Republicans wanting some reductions in spending in return for which they were going to accede to the expansion, the increase in the debt limit and the delay until I think it's January, January 2025 of having to do this again. It is, I'll have to use a technical term in economics, Nuts. It's absolutely (laughs) nuts. 
Is this all just downside for the Democrats? Is there no, other than avoiding hitting the debt ceiling, is there no no silver lining to this? There's not a lot of good. Remember, you're talking to a mere economist. I'm not a political strategist. I don't live in Washington, D.C., or as the Washingtonians would say, inside the Beltway. <laughs> uh, so I don't have those kinds of political insight skills. But, you know, we avoided the catastrophe, and I truly believe it would have been a catastrophe. There has been the ability to compromise. The radicals at both ends got outvoted by the more reasonable folks in the middle. That may, may offer some hope for other legislative consensus events going forward. But for the most part, you know, liberals as a general matter can't be all that happy. On the other hand, there are, you know, far right Republicans who are saying, oh, we had this opportunity to really cut spending and we blew it. So, you know, the guys on both sides, are the men and women on both ends? They weren't happy. You've got to compromise. So for the economy, what happens in 2025? Is this just this all has to happen again? Or is there something within the legislation that automatically means that some sort of process has to happen at that point? A lot will depend on what the election outcome of 2024 is. All right. You should you should know this is a matter of public record. I'm a big D Democrat. I tend to mark my ballots in favor of Democrats. That's matter of public record, but you know, let's get that out on the table. And so, in my view, I hope uh, President Biden uh, gets reelected, and he has a Democratic Congress that a majority of Democrats in both the House and the Senate that he brings along with him. And one of the first things they do, which they didn't do the last time they had the opportunity, and why didn't they do it? I don't know, um, is they say, we got to get rid of this, as I described before, this nuts process of not only going through the budgetary process, but then having to do this debt authorization as a separate matter and it is a opportunity for taking hostages. We've got to get rid of it. That's what I would hope they would do. You know, as far as the economy, there are so many other things that can be going on between now and then. It's hard to make uh, more than very general predictions. We're in a strong position right now in terms of unemployment. We've got a rate of inflation that is higher than most people, most inside the Beltway people. And I'm outside and I think it's too high as well, higher than they would like. So we're likely to continue to see higher interest rates by the Federal Reserve efforts to try to cool down the economy. By January of 2025, Maybe they have succeeded. Oh, yes. And by the way, as you know, we had a few sizable banks fail just a few months ago. And that's a wild card. The bank fragility 
in the U.S. economy is a serious issue and things could go off the rails because of bank fragility. I tend to be an optimist. I tend to think we'll be okay in January 2025, but stuff can happen. What happens if the Republicans are in power then? (sighs) All right. Good question. Uh, (laughs) I think they are, you know, they won't want to get rid of the debt ceiling issue because they will be looking farther into the future and saying, hey, from our perspective, this is a future point of leverage that we don't want to give up. Um, They will want to cut back on various kinds of spending. They're not going to want to raise taxes. That's not what Republicans tend to do nowadays. And so we will see the U.S. national debt increase, and the Republicans will happily vote in favor of an expansion of the overall uh, U.S. national debt at that point. So we have a political system. It is more prone to dysfunction than was true 15, 20 years ago. Alas, I don't see things changing very much. So Republicans touted $2 trillion in savings over the next 10 years. Where is that money going to to come from? Where are these savings actually going to be made? Do we know that at the moment? (sighs) Often this is, we're going to find sources of inefficiency and we'll get rid of them. And that's the level of specificity that is generated. They've cut back on the amount of, you know, as part of the compromise, the legislation a year ago had said that the Internal Revenue Service, our tax collection agency, was going to get more funds, modernize itself, improve collections, do more audits. Uh, The Republicans didn't like that at all. They see the IRS as a arbitrary and capricious agency. They wanted less funding. They got a little bit less funding. There'll be some saving there. They had uh, work requirements uh, for the recipients of various kinds of public subsidies. To the extent that there's less subsidy, there'll be some savings there. I think everybody is saying there's not a lot of specificity as to exactly what's going to be achieved. And the big things, which is our social security, our pension system, our Medicare, our uh, government support for uh, old, you know, medical spending by individuals 65 years and older, Medicaid, federal uh, support for state expenditures to help low-income households access medical care, military spending, interest on the national debt. That was all off the table from the beginning. So the places where the really big bucks are there didn't get addressed. Were the Republicans trying to go for that sort of thing? Would they like to go at Medicare because it's something they've obviously always been opposed to for whatever way? Would that have been the first thing they'd have gone for if they possibly could have? 
Well, see, you know, there, I think I would describe it as schizophrenia, that in their intestines, Republicans would like to cut back on those things. But there is this general recognition these things are popular with their constituents. The State of the Union address like three months ago, President Biden, I don't know how much this was anticipated, you know, that was sort of strategized ahead ahead of time, but either planned or impromptu, he made a brilliant, just a brilliant political ploy where in his speech, he says something like, and uh, the Republicans in Congress are trying to cut back on Social Security and Medicare. And the, you know, the Republicans in the audience immediately sort of jump up and say, no, 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 that's not what we're trying to do. And he immediately responds. And again, I don't know how much this was pre-planned or just spontaneous, he says, great, so we are agreed. There will not be cutbacks in Social Security and Medicare. I'm so happy that there has, uh, you know, there is this general agreement. So the Republicans were, what is the expression, Uh, hoist on their own petard? Zooming out, what is the what's the broad state of the U.S. economy at the moment? Huh, except for inflation, really good. We've got historically low rates of unemployment. Anybody who wants a job, it's going to be relatively easy to find a job. He or she, you know, will have to do a little bit of searching. They may not get quite what they want in quite the right place, but vacancies are being uh, filled only slowly. There's lots of help wanted ads, summer employment for students, uh, whether they're high school students, university students, it looks like there's going to be plenty of employment opportunities. So from that perspective, things look strong. We still have a rate of inflation that in the range of call it 4 to 5%, which is higher than the 2% that policymakers think is the target. Zero is not the target. That's a whole complicated other story. But 2% inflation, that was true up till about two years ago. Then for a set of both supply and demand reasons. Prices started going up faster than 2%. The Federal Reserve, as was true for central banks around the world, including the Bank of England, was too slow to recognize there was a real problem here. They're now trying to you know, catch up. We've still got this faster than desired rate of inflation, roughly 5% in the United States. It's a bit higher in the UK. I think it's in the range of 7% in the UK. Are you seeing the same sort of food price rises that we're seeing over here and the same sort of energy bill crisis that we have on our end? 
Not as much. There was a big story in uh, yesterday's Wall Street Journal, egg prices, you know, the price of a dozen eggs, which six months ago were like double the level of what they had been a year earlier. They're back down to where they had been a year and a half ago. So we're still seeing some increases. Um, we're not experiencing, as I understand, the food price issue in the UK. Gasoline, which, you know, we're a very car-oriented society, and electrical vehicles have, are still only a very small fraction of our overall car and truck fleet. Uh, gasoline is down at, you know, relatively moderate levels as compared with a year ago, year and a half ago. Generally, again, the inflation issue hasn't gone away, but things seem to be moving in a good direction. When it comes to the economy, if you were Biden or Janet Yellen, would there be anything that's keeping you up at night at the moment? Oh, yeah, it's it's those banks. It's the fragility of the bank system. Uh, that is what would keep me up at night. Now, I happen to know a lot about banks and bank regulation and bank fragility, but so does Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen was the chair of the Federal Reserve. She had been a deputy chair. Before that, she had been the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Before that, she had been the chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors during the Clinton administration. She's got a very impressive and very long and impressive track record of government service, government policymaking. She understands about banks a lot. And there are some things she at the Treasury can do, but the Federal Reserve is an independent agency, somewhat like the Bank of England. And so there's only limited amounts of things that the administration can do. And in my mind, the really important things will require legislation, which means you got to bring the Congress in. And nowadays, who knows what the Congress is willing to do or not do. As we saw coming right up close two days away from when it looked like the United States was not going to be able to pay its bills. If you were Joe Biden right now, what would you be trying to do to make things better? <laughs> well, again, you know, to me, the banking thing is the most important issue and I would talk, we of course be talking to my secretary of the treasury and I would be having, you know, it is not unknown for the president to have conversations with the uh, federal reserve or to have, you know, th have it go through secretary Yellen and say, look guys, you've got to improve the quality of the regulation. We've got a bunch of fragile banks out there. They're, they need more oversight. They need more supervision. We've got to be sensitive to what's called interest rate risk, as well as the standard 
credit risk? Will the borrowers be able to pay back their loans from the banks? We need to be a whole lot more sensitive to these things than we were as recently as February, as recently as four months ago. We've got to be on top of this. We can't let another Silicon Valley bank or a a First Republic bank or a signature bank start having a depositor run that is phenomenally corrosive and can really undermine a modern economy. We simply can't let that happen. Are the main threats out of Biden's hands, really? You know, they're things like banks, it's things like what the Federal Reserve decides to or not do, and other countries, like looking at what China might do and looking at the global economy as well. Okay, so, you know, look, you know, I was thinking purely domestically, but of course, there are non-domestic overseas issues, whether it's how are we going to deal with China and the Chinese economy? How are we going to deal with the Russian-Ukraine war? And you know what happens there can have a major effect, as we've learned, on things like prices. If I were the president every night, you know, I'd be worried, am I going to wake up tomorrow morning and discover that there's been an expansion of the hostilities? Somehow Poland has gotten pulled in. Somehow the Balkan countries have gotten pulled in. Those are the things, you know, after worrying about the U.S. banks, those are the things I would worry about as well. Larry, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'm happy to be able to help on this. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in the bunker. Bunker USA was written and presented by managing editor Jacob Jarvis. The producer is Chris Jones, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production. <laughs>